I'm Isabel Allen, Editor of Architecture Today, and this is 80 Conversations. My guests today are Jay Gort from Gort Scott Architects and Matthew Barrack from London Met. And we're here to talk about The Rock, designed by Gort Scott Architects. It's an extraordinary house on a rocky outcrop in Canada. Jay, how did a Bermondsey-based practice come to be designing a fantasy mansion in the Canadian mountains? So basically, it was through an invited competition. Um, we were, and it's quite unusual to do get, to have a house project like this. We realised through competitions, but I think this was for the client. For this was somebody that um, had a real connection to this particular site. Um, he'd found the site a few years previous to that and had this dream to build a house on this particular point. It's a house which was going to be for his family um, to go and to, to to retire to and live there um, for. a um, as their primary residence so it's not just a holiday house in a way um, and he wanted to because it's going to be a unique venture for him he hasn't built a house like this before he wanted to do it in in, in a very personal way to him and took, take time in selecting the right architecture partner for this um, and so he defined a, a competition for this project we were Mabel Law um, was someone quite important to the whole process of this um, She's somebody who's based in London and she's a, she has many skills, but one of them is being a sort of um, an interior designer uh, in, in, as amongst other, other professions she's had as well. And had previously worked with the client on, a, on an apartment in actually Hong Kong at one time, doing the interiors and finding the finishings and things for that. And Mabel actually helped put together the list, the long list of 20 architects for that. And I think the client had requested that there would be um, it wasn't going to be architects that had done this lots of times before. I mean, the client's actually someone who has a sort of sense that he made his money really through investing in in buying and investing in companies and bringing them and making successes from those and saw there was a chance to have a younger architecture practice, a, you know, a chance to do something that was quite special and build a relationship with him. And he's an extremely trusting client to have. And so... On the, we, we, we got our name on the shortest of the way. We'd done a, a small house in the Isle of Man made of stone at that time and a few other little extensions here and there. And so when we, when we got pro- approached to be part of this, we thought, oh, that seems, seems great. So we put our name on the, we had that long list. Um, and then we were selected to be, I think, one of three or four to actually do the design competition at that stage. And um, yeah, so, so that's when the design started. So that's really how we made that first break. I mean, I can go on to explain now about how we approached the design competition and then how we actually won that then, but then essentially through the design competition. Well, I'm intrigued to know whether you were flown out to Canada. (laughs) I saw that you developed your uh, initial designs by kind of sitting on the site and tracking the sun and sketching and really understanding the context. Is that something that all the shortlisted practices did or was that after you'd won the commission? So that was... That, no, that was during the competition, basically. Um, I think that we might have been the only people of the four people that went to the site. I think one of them might have done as well. Um, but I just felt it was going to be absolutely essential. I mean, we did have a very modest honorarium to, to do the competition itself. I mean, most competitions like don't even get any anything for it. So, and that, 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 in a way, paid for the plane flights, I guess, almost, to go over there. And I, it was in sort of in the springtime of 2013, I think. So we as a practice, we're like six years old at the time. Um, you know, it's a long process, obviously, to go through. I mean, things are ages away. It all started. Um, and 
we so 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 I decided we, we you know we had to sort of go over there and so I went over and um basically spent five days more or less camping there I was actually staying sorry somewhere very locally but would be there to the last thing at night first thing in the morning sort of sketching drawing listening to the sounds looking at the way the light fell through the trees particular viewpoints and you know trying to climb up these big hemlock and fir trees and stuff and probably for getting big gorges in my legs as I slide down the trees and sort of fall over fruit for the trees but to you know to, to actually get through and to really understand the, the, the site itself and to try and sort of absorb and soak in as much as we possibly could do like a like a sponge in a way of the, of the site. And so, do you think it was that commitment and that level of engagement with the site that actually won you the job? I think it was actually I think it was in the in the in the proposal we sort of wrote a short sort of diary in a way of the time on the site and and our then my personal appreciation of walking up to the top of the rock and the, the sort of the, the 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 different kind of views and the different sensations you experience and the different experience of doing that and I think that the whole premise of the the project was to try and capture a sense and the qualities of being what it was like to be to walk up and get to the top of that rock rocky crest on the edge of the lake there Whilst, whilst quite a sizable building was going to be built there as well, to try and have it so that there was a real reciprocity in the landscape and the building, such that you hadn't destroyed the, the special characteristics of what was currently there. So we started our competition proposal by explaining that journey of coming up towards the top of the rock and then standing on top of the rock. And on top of this rock, you might see if, if, if any of the, the listeners or yourself look at the drawings and the photographs, but we're on this rocky um, outcrop just on the edge of this lake. And actually to the foot of that is this public park. There's a public park in Whistler, which is like where you get a lot of people doing, and they go paddle boarding and just sunbathing in the summer and things. And there's bike tracks going around the park. And it's quite, it's got a lovely sort of hubbub and a noise to that. And it's a, a life that goes on there. It makes its buildings quite public in some way. And when you're on top of this rock, just looking down at that, you feel somehow, you can hear the noise of that. You can feel connected to that. But because you have this huge cloak of trees and you've got Whistler Mountain behind you as well, you feel very sort of, um you know very very protected and shielded at the same time as well so and I think there's some real contradictions of this sensation of being on the top of this rock and whilst being sort of enclosed as well and I think that was trying to it was was talking about that and trying to capture that spirit whilst the whilst the building we placed there as well how could you harness that and I think that was the client actually said that's exactly the feeling he'd felt when he'd written that afterwards he felt had exactly that same feeling when he was up on there and I think that was probably more than some of the drawings and the architectural pieces that we had, which the concept still remains true through, through the design and development. I think it was that that really captured the fact that he felt there was somebody there that had something in tune with him and the way he'd read the site. So I think that was really useful, yes. Matthew, where do you see it in the, the kind of great context of big, passionate, domestic manifestos, if you like? Uh, yeah, good question. I think this is one of those... Uh, works of architecture that, I mean, I feel very fake in a way making these comments because it is one of those works that really is crying out to be visited in the flesh. You kind of need to be there to understand it. Um, But I visited uh, Jay and Fiona's office and I looked at, they have a number of models of different scales Um, and Jay took me through it and we looked at uh, photographs from a range of sources so not only the beautifully composed architectural ones with not a speck of dust in sight, but also the kind of occupied ones. 
Um, and I think with regard to this issue of how it uh, makes its claim on you and how and where it where it kind of fits, um, it does uh, on the one hand have this kind of timelessness, but on the other hand, um, it sort of seems to be very now because there's a sense of the intensity of the architecture to my mind. It is an escapist fantasy, but on the other hand, it's really uh, rooted in realness. It's very tectonic. It's got a weight to it. But it's a weight that is all about, you know, the embodiment of the rock and the realness of the materials and the, the kind of texture of the concrete and its weight. But at the same time, um, a very heady sense of articulation. So it's very thoughtful, but also the kind of the, the, the fundamental claim, which you talked about spiritual, I think, you know, the the word that sprang to mind when I was talking to Jay about it is the kind of cosmological aspect. It's all about the ground and the sky. This is AT Conversations. You can listen to the back catalogue at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast. But at the same time, it has um, these uh, sort of highly articulated geometric aspects and a real, a real interest in horizons. So... That idea of it being rooted in realness, I think, is something that we need a lot more of right now. I mean, we, we've, we've become so used to the world of simulation and sort of disconnected virtuality that surrounds us. And I think realness is like a gift, actually. And maybe that's something that the client had a sense of, that sense of connection. Um, you said atmosphere and emotional. Absolutely. But it's also... Um, a kind of a, a, a trust in the fundamental things that, to my mind, um, this house delivers. Yeah, so I think that is something that people really want right now. I think we're all sick to death of virtuality and unreality and not being able to go outside and be in real places with real people. It looks almost like a place of pilgrimage, the way that it's drawn. So I'm, I'm kind of amazed to hear that it actually is the family home. I completely assumed it was for kind of two weeks a year when they take all the photos for a year's worth of Instagram. <laughs> I mean, it sounds as though it was very much the father of the family who led on the design process. What happens when he's not there? Is it almost like, the you know, um, nighttime at the museum? This kind of other life happens and they kind of... <laughs> I can definitely get a sense of that through, you know, Rory's... Rory Gardner's photographs are really beautiful and they're very composed and actually... A lot of the furniture and pieces were stripped away for those. So you could capture on the light, you know, his, his approach is to really try and capture the light and that works in the materials. And the thoughts is that those, those other pieces aren't what you spent seven years designing, all of this accoutrements in the way of life. When you're there, I mean, it does have the chaos of life that goes on within that. I mean, they've got, it's a husband and wife and three, three children, and they're really easygoing, really good, really enjoyable to get on with. And they really occupy the house just, you know, like, for example, the lounge up at the top where there's, this, there's a series of open plan levels, which is at the crest of the rock, where you've got sort of the kitchen area, dining area, a snug and a sort of um, a living room. And they're all slightly subtly on different levels, which according to the topography that was existing there. And on the one hand, that seems like an inhabited sculpture. But when you start to realise it's actually when you see it in play, when... The, the, you know, the father might be at the table sort of working his laptop or something. There's someone kick, cooking there. The now might be in the study working, you know, the, the little snug in the study. And then and the, the, the son will be on playing on the carpet with his Lego and stuff is all over the place. And it just generally feels like there, there really is a lot of those interactions that we imagined from the very start of this thing. Um, 
you know, really playing themselves out. And I think there's something as well about those upper levels where what you don't quite see in the photographs is that it's excre- the, the acoustics are really carefully considered. I mean, the whole of that soffit where the oak timber uh, ceiling is, behind that there's, perfor- there's tiny perforations where there's quite thick acoustic insulation at the top there. So as you step into that space, it's actually really quite quiet and, de- and, and with the rugs on the floor as well. And so there's something really um, sort of surprising in that way because of it. And, it. and it takes it away from it feeling like a public building or something or, or a museum, as you say there, where sort of the experience of being there feels very sort of natural and not like you're very much, you know, not on show and it's not all that part of procession. However, saying that, the whole idea of movement through the building was very carefully choreographed. The whole idea of that process, of how you could get that journey to the top and you still capture some of the essence of walking up the rock, of course, as we said at the intro, was was an important factor to try and get that same experience but we didn't I was very we were very conscious of it not becoming just about journey and process and, and route and no actually dwelling and stopping so you you do find there's a series of spaces that are interconnected and there's a sense of you know almost like a collage when you're when you're in one of those situations you really do that does you can really hold and be grounded and feel like that place is orientated so the dining table is orientated to get the west light from over rainbow mountain to the west there as it comes through in a particular time or the 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 breakfast bar in the morning gets east light coming through the forest at particular points or the music room has got views in a particular way but there's a sort of there's a atmosphere to it seems captured relevant to that particular human activity and and i've got to say that you know even though we it has got a lot of sculptural qualities to it and that's a big reading of the project um it actually comes first and foremost through it being sort of through thinking about human situations, really, and those how you really live in that space. Actually, the wife was very much part of the journey as well. And those discussions together, there would often be you'd have those similar kind of things of working with any family where you have the you're the mediator at some points and you're discussing and there's viewpoints that some people agree with, some don't. And it was really like any any other project where you have you trying to really get under the skin of the brief to try and make sure how they live at the moment and how they could really this could allow them to live in different ways in the future as well. Matthew, going back to you then, where do you see this as sitting in the tradition of houses that represent a particular family and their own, not just experience, but shared aspirations about how they're perceived and how they're going to live and how their relationship to each other is going to play out spatially? The, the the family side of things it's quite strange because um you also just to sort of contradict some of the things that jay was saying well not what he was saying but the implication that this house is in any way the domestic setting or an ordinary house is obviously not very tenable because it's extraordinary sure. um but it does it's definitely not formal it's not like a stately home in in any way um it's very large and of course i mean i remember many years ago um one of the partners of orms talking about a large project that they had been commissioned to do for a, for a for a family and saying one of the issues about one of the difficulties for many british architects is that we can't we don't do these grandiose homes in the uk either it's a bijou beautifully designed little piece or otherwise it's a stately home and this is a home which is absolutely expansive so I think that there's a there's a there's definitely a reading of how the family wants to live, but that dialogue between formality and informality and the way that the family that the home might create those areas of separation for different members of the family, I think is really beautifully indicated, not just in the plan, but I think the section is really important here. 
Um, that issue of journey and of pilgrimage, I think, as you said, pilgrimage when you get inside the house is quite pronounced, but it is, it's not just a movement into the different parts of the house. It's very much a vertical journey. You know, you come in through an extraordinary sort of cave-like entrance space, uh, and then you move uh, either up the staircase towards the light or into a space beneath the living area, which is where the two, where, where the two kids' bedrooms are. And that's really interesting. The kids do have their own domain. So immediately, um, this sense of the house accommodating sort of different desires and requirements for the different members of the family is very much present. And then two floors up is where the parents have their, their suite, their kind of world. And it's a world all of, you know, beautifully crafted timber. Um, and the space in between is this kind of interior landscape, which is something between a stage set there, there's this wonderful space that looks like it's a kind of reconstruction of an Adolf Apia set. Um, and also above it, these, these sort of hanging lanterns of um, some of them occupied and some of them um, dropping light in. So I think there's very much a vision of a kind of architecture represented. I do think it's a manifesto house. I think, you know, you take the classics everyone always refers to, Le Corbusier's uh, Villa Savoie being the uh, like representation of the five points of architecture or Adolf Loess's Villa Müller being all about realm plan. And it has something of that realm planness, but completely exploded because it's an open plan realm plan. Um, but that theatricality of overlooked spaces and views through is really interesting. I think the other thing in terms of a manifesto that this does, and maybe this is kind of gearing more towards a kind of design critique, is it handles this, these grand gestures and the embodiment uh, questions really nicely. Uh, being up above, being below, being in the ground, uh, being in a garden. Um, but then there are these subtle moments of articulation which are brilliant. There's this view that uh, Jay was explaining to me, which when you're in the living room, you can see the lake behind you. But if you look the other way, if you look east, you're looking out um, across the uh, the pool directly towards the Whistler Mountain in the distance. And it's literally on the axis with the pool. So the pool suddenly ends up being almost like a piece of geometric signage. It's pointing you at the mountain and the pool in front of you almost becomes, you know, with, at the risk of overinterpretation, a fictional lake that you can swim in this pool under the mountain and then go to the living room to dry off and look down on the real lake down below. So there are all these relationships that start to appear to you. And while I'm on a roll, I'll just mention one other, which is the other thing that when you look quite carefully at the plan and the, the photos together, you start to recognize the cues with regard to this journey that the house gives you and tells you. It's, it's a very kind of modernist exercise, but it's kind of postmodern as well in the play between pictorial moments of uh, visual kind of experience, particularly at the bottom of the stairs, as I was saying earlier, when you come into the home, there's this view with the staircase going up to the right-hand side and on the left-hand is the way to the kids' bedrooms and the cinema room. But when the door is closed to that, uh, that route to the kids' bedroom, uh, there's a purple stained timber door and beside it, a purple stained uh, um, uh, um, uh, panel with a diagonal vent in it, which creates this kind of false recessive uh, drawing. And I can see them sketching it and saying, well, there's this kind of fl 
there's this pictorial version of what's happening, but then you open the door and it maps out into reality. And that's one of a number of beautifully composed vignettes in architecture where the flatness of the pictorial experience is very much in dialogue with then mapping it out as experience. To me, it's much more sort of loose than it is corb. I mean, partly because of the the kind of play of, um, you know, ceiling heights and compression and all those things but also of course the enjoyment in the juxtaposition of the the very kind of lean stark slightly brutal materials and then actually the kind of the luxurious the softness the you know in a way corpse houses tended to be more straightforward didn't they they were kind of pure and they kind of they wanted to be read in a way that I feel maybe Lowe's didn't quite and actually this house in the same way you know it has secrets as you just said it has surprises it has tensions it enjoys being contradictory and of course uh, when you look at the external expression I'm thinking more almost of sort of Frank Lloyd Wright and Falling Water or something in that there's that desire to be landscape as much as it is anything else. There's definitely a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright in it but I mean also there's a kind of slight fetishism in it there's an obsessiveness to some of the detail which is like those very studied um, aestheticized experiences of uh, David at some of David Ajay's houses for example where a very shiny surface is then at play with a kind of heavily artificial painted surface and there are those moments which are quite compositional, also remind one a little bit of the uh, some of the work of Eric Parry, that extraordinary thing that he did in the Chateau de Paulin in, in France, where the, um, the care with which, with, with which certain highly articulated moments are made is then in dialogue with, with moments where the material is really celebrated for its kind of fundamental roughness and unfinishedness. Is it a complete one-off in your body of work or can you see it as a a continuum of the work you've done on more modest residential projects? That process of looking really closely at site and and a place is true for all of our projects and that's the same frankly on a high street as well where you're trying to sort of reveal the qualities the unique qualities of any particular place and obviously here we have some really quite unique qualities of the landscape we've got there but to really capture that is still still the same we wherever it is. You're listening to 80 Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. The back catalogue is available at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast. I think you've got that point about the um, thinking through human situations and people coming first. And I do agree, Matthew, this is not trying to say this is a standard, typical affordable housing scheme or something like that. But it's just those considerations about how you know we really did think and talk it through with the client about, do you imagine you having that discussion on the dining table and how far apart should the breakfast table be? If, you know, what, where are those, what's those proximities? And, and actually, so the people coming first is a key to manifesto as well. And, and I must mention thing about scale at some point, because you mentioned the David Adjay house with, and so you come back to that in a moment. There's people, there's a, so there's a human situation, there's the, the making and the whole engage, material engagement is a really important part. This was, you know, it was such, I mean, one day I hope we have this opportunity as well to explore materiality and construction and craft in the same kind of way as, as, as this project allowed us. I mean, we were working with such brilliant um, contractor, Durfelt Construction, who we interviewed. And as part of the interview process, we were fortunate enough to be able to go and interview some of the very best contractors in Vancouver and sort of 
the Whistler area and look at some amazing houses. And they were just, and people like Al from BMAC Construction, who did the construct, the concrete works, were just fantastic. But it's thinking about that material engagement and Joe McMahon and Andrew Tam, the architects that worked on this with us, you know, they had that real care and dedication. Everything you see there were drawn down to the, you know, in such detail. And without an executive architecture, actually, we were sort of the, we ran the whole project through ourselves and through the detail design through our office. Um, and, but it's that material, still thinking about how this is, with projects, it's a material engagement, but all very much led to relationship to atmosphere as well, and that relationship between structure and atmosphere and construction. So it's not just the idea of fetishism of the, 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 the handrail itself. It's like, what does that mean for that particular setting? And I think there's just something generally about this idea of the building as a landscape and this idea of the movement and distinct ideas of sort of relationships between public and private and the different uses and the thresholds and the hierarchies in the buildings are something which is really, when we come to think about it, is how we think when we're thinking through an urban plan or something, and I've just come from a meeting talking about sort of a, a much different scale, a city scale, master plan scale, where we're still thinking about that sequence of how one public space relates to another and where the thresholds and the, you know, so all of those things really come through there. So it has to be, you know, it's interesting to see this as being a sort of manifesto project. So I think that some of those lessons, you know, will never, although it'd be completely unique, a lot of those things have been a fantastic testing testing bed for much of our work and our design process. How did you set about designing for such extremes of temperature? Because we're quite yeah. spoilt in a way here, aren't we? We kind of design for somewhere between very rainy and, oh, it shouldn't be quite this hot. <laughs> yeah, it was basically through... <laughs> Through working with very good engineers, and it's just using the snow as your friend in a way. So, so you get in the winter, you get this whole building is completely changed, and it's like covered in, you know, two meters. You know, the, the, the top terrace there will be like deep of a one and a half meters full of snow or something, and all down the rock, and all the and the whole lake you face onto it gets completely iced over and you can walk across it and it has a very different relationship. And, and does the house and, get cut off? Does the, the road house get cut close. off? No, because you can, there's still a road, a lane that comes up to it that can be sort of, it's part of some municipal um, road there. So you can still get to it, no problem. But, it, but I guess it was like just knowing that we had these huge loads of the snow and we, and, and actually a lot of the design code of the area around there is to ask sort of what, what um, the client referred to as snow white houses, you know, that kind of A-frame sort of typical, and for some reason, the design code for the area was suggesting that that's what you should be lending your building towards and in planning is like that Alpine Lodge. And it's funny because Whistler has no her- no relationship in a way to that Swiss Alpine Lodge. And actually, actually those, those kind of roofs, you know, they don't hold the snow on them. And actually there's something fantastic about holding the snow on it in terms of thermally insulating the building. So actually having the sort of, obviously we have to think very carefully at how you drain roof from those terraces and decks. And it's extremely, you know, just, just, extremely a lot of consideration going into the detailing of those so you could make sure all the water could run off safely without freezing etc but then it's just sort of using that so that it was part of again the aesthetic as well of these planes of snow that are held up in 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 the air in some way you know how we got to grips with working with the rock working with all the seismic things you know there's all sorts of different constraints and challenges with basically through having a great team of consultants so equilibrium with a sort of structure engineer that were brought on board and they they they're based in Vancouver and actually all of the different various consultants we had were from the local area so it has a lot of sunk knowledge in that way. So what is the local vernacular is there a style for that part of the world? It used to be a lot of those timber log cabin A-frame type buildings but now you'll find there are a number of these spaces where it's sites which are slightly on their own or where you'll get some quite unusual houses which will relate to you know be quite modernist or 
a whole number of different types in their own in their own right. I mean, it's a bit like other areas in the world, like Aspen or I don't know other high value places. Have we reached a stage where the, the super rich have a sort of international tradition and language of their own, and uh, vernacular housing is sort of left to the slightly less affluent? Do you think? One of the difficulties for the super rich, and it must be a dreadful curse, um, is that they are so um, it's so easy for them to do the wrong thing. Um, we see so many absolutely awful houses. So in a way, when you when you, when you, when you're asked to comment on a, a work of architecture that is really worth getting into and which has value. Um, and which, of course, um, with uh, with the kind of uh, ge- general politics of it, you you want to say nasty things about people who have an awful lot when people have very little. But you know, in this case, they are obviously very enlightened clients who are doing something um, that has a kind of specificity with regard to the site. I do think that the I do think that some of the I do think that this architecture comes from a kind of um, uh, a very deep understanding of human situations. I support what Jay has said in that regard. Um, and the kind of the, the, the typicality of that, some of those situations is very nicely expressed in, in, in this project. But at the same time, um, I think that the super rich do have, or many of us, I think, in our attitude to architecture do have arrived at this place where we can pick and mix our references um, this house does have some magpie references, and I think also it invites interpretation, which I think is one of the nice things about it. I was saying to Jay, um, is there something, uh, you know, whether it's through Frank Lloyd Wright or Carlo Scarpa or whoever, is there something about the kind of japanese of this house, the kind of Far Eastern references that you thought about consciously? And he said, mm, I don't think so. Uh, and he didn't really see until we discussed it. And then he he, he did agree with me that there's this, um, especially those kind of, I'm thinking of Chinese cities or, or, or fortified towns where you get the kind of uh, bottom of the building is very much coming out of the ground, um, walled houses made of the, made of uh, stone or cement, the same color as the earth. And then with these kind of blackened hats, which are almost like pagoda hats sitting on top. Um, but I think that, I think that, I think that that sense of being able to um, adapt and adopt different um, forms of influence and forms of inspiration into an architecture which, when you get to it, is very much unified and does feel like, like it belongs. I don't think that's about what the clients choose. I think that's a credit to the architectural imagination. Matthew Barrick, Jay Gort, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining me today. You've been listening to 80 Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. You can subscribe free of charge at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.